Welcome to Innovate at Open, the podcast that explores open source through the lenses of distributed collaboration, collective invention, and technology creation. I'm your host, Gordon Half, technology evangelist with Red Hat. Hi, everyone. This is Gordon Half, technology evangelist with Red Hat. Welcome to another edition of Innovate at Open. And I have two great guests today who I'll let introduce themselves in a moment. And what we are going to talk about is, had Linux not existed, would we have invented it anyway? Stephen, introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Stephen Von Nichols. I'm a contributing editor at CBS Interactive, and I've been following Linux and open source since uh, Linus was a graduate student, and uh, open source didn't exist. Instead, all we had was free software. And Brian? Uh, I'm Brian Cantrell. I'm a software engineer. I've been um, doing OS development in one shape or another for the last 25 years, 20 plus years. Um, and I worked at Sun for, for 14 years before being the CTO of Joint, cloud computing company, and uh, recently started a computer company, Oxide Computer Company. So, Stephen and Brian, we're in an alternate timeline, much like ours, up to about 1990. So, DARPA created the ARPANET. And the network is on track to become the interconnected computer. The history of AT&T, Unix, and BSD at Berkeley played out pretty much just like it did for us. I'm going to even posit that Richard Stallman at the MIT AI, AI Lab still got mad at his printer, started to write GNU, and published the GNU Manifesto. Microsoft dominates the desktop, although Windows is still to be charitable, pretty darn clunky. But now we diverge. It's about 1990, and a University of Helsinki computer science student, Linus Torvalds, decides this CS stuff is for the birds and decides to pursue a career in ice sculpture. Stephen, I'm going to let you take this away. What, what's <laughs> happening in the early 90s that starts to look a little odd to us? Okay, uh, so uh, Linus has decided that he's going to take his chisel off into the, the far north and start carving ice sculptures. Fine. What happens from here as far as the operating system world is concerned? That's a darn good question. I think that the Internet uh, takes a different path, and it's going to be based primarily on the BSD Unixes and SunOS, and yes, I know there's some argument that really aren't you talking about all the same thing, but we won't get into that right now. Uh, I think it's going to be a much slower process, uh, the internet that is getting off the ground. I think that it's possible that here we are in 2020, uh, almost 30 years later, and we would be running, God help us, Windows 2020 as our... <laughs> both our desktop and our server operating system. Open source is stalled out. Uh, doesn't exist at all, really. We still have free software, thanks to RMS. But I don't see that ever really engaging in the business world. Um, same thing with the BSDs and the BSD license. They are around. They're important, probably on the Internet as a server operating system. But uh, it's a very different and very proprietary world, and I think 
open source in general is a concept that really never catches fire. Very different world indeed. I think that's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is absolutely insane. I, mm -hmm. I, I, so, all right, let's take that from the beginning. First of all, um, if, you know, Torvalds is no, it doesn't do uh, Linux, the rise of the Internet is unaffected. Let's just get that out there. The rise of the Internet, which happens really in starting in 93, certainly the rise of, of HTML is far more important to the rise of the Internet than Linux, which had logical equivalents in other systems. Um, and having been a, I graduated um, in, from university in 1996, so this is definitely bullseye for me. And the, the rise of the Internet through 93, 94, 95, the rise of Java in, in 95 is very important. Um, and then the internet explodes in, in 95, 96, 97. Yahoo, I didn't even, did not run on Linux, ran on FreeBSD. Um, the, it was really the, it was the workstation companies that, uh, exploded. And in particular, the, and part of the reason I went to work for Sun Microsystems in 1996 is the, the other workstation, historic Unix workstation companies had, uh, or server companies, uh, had all decided that Windows was the future. And it was only Sun that had decided that uh, to stand by Unix. Uh, and it was um, Unix that exploded with the Internet. Uh, but it is, the, it, the Internet was going to explode. I mean, that was, it had, I think, nothing to do really with, with Linux. I, I think that um, what ended up happening over the, the, the kind of the late 90s and into the 2000s, Linux does not become really, truly, deeply relevant until it, the, the microprocessor that it was welded to, the x86, begins to surpass the, the risk microprocessors. And if you want the, the fastest microprocessor on the planet in 2000, 2001, 2002, that is increasingly an x86-based part and not a power-based part or spark-based part or MIPS-based part or PA risk-based part. With the rise of, and then I think that another very important, in terms of the rise of Linux, one of the things that's very important is the commoditization of the x86 and the bust, frankly. Um, so the, the bust from 2000, 2001, 2002, by the time you hit 2002, 2003, we're in a, a nuclear winter um, of an economic bust. And so it is the economics of x86 and the de facto Unix on x86, which was Linux. So I've got a totally different read of history. Um, I think if it's not Linux, it would have been one of the BSD variants, would have been the de facto Unix on x86. But it is the rise of the Internet, and it is the, the rise of SMP to, to a lesser degree, uh, and then the, um, the rise of commodity microprocessors um, as highest-performing microprocessors that um, – Linux grabbed a ride and drafted on those economic megatrends, but did not really contribute to them. I would say Linux actually helps those um, economic megatrends get going, though. It provides an easy-to-use, relatively secure operating system with a large group of developers, which, thanks indeed to the x86, is freely, and it's also freely available on this mass consumer processing unit, which we discover in part because of Linux, that you can take this desktop chip and actually start using it in servers. So it serves as an accelerant, uh, as, as it were, to the already growing internet. And so it's, 
I think we're sort of heading towards a, a chicken and the egg situation here with the growth of Linux and the uh, rise of x86 processors into becoming, you know, they become the processors really for the next 30 years. Yeah, and I, I just don't read that as having anything to do with, with Linux. I think that the, the it is not Linux that re- leads to the rise of the x86. It's the rise of the x86 that, that leads to Linux. And that the rise of x86 has mm-hmm. got to do with with a whole bunch of things that are m- much larger economic trends. That I mean, it's got to do with the terrific process execution by Intel. It's got to do with the fact that they were monetizing the part over a much a broader, uh, uh, in terms of the, the, the consumer internet, was the rise of the consumer internet was very important. So to me, those are the, the, the trends that, that trump anything that was happening in system software. And the BSDs were, were available for x86, and especially once the lawsuit was cleared in the early 90s. I, and I can just tell you that the feeling among my peers in the the late 90s was well if we weren't working on if we had to use x86 and we didn't and at the time we had the uh, the operating system solaris was ported x86 but the assumption would be that it would just be free bsd um and i think that that's the assumption on the companies that were building things on x86 as well in the late 90s early 2000s and i mean ultimately linux clearly does surpass the the bsds in terms of adoption um, and I think that there's there are some interesting questions in terms of why Linux versus the BSDs, but again, I don't. I think in both cases, those that they're the the tail on the dog, the dog being the much larger economic trends. I'm not sure that the BSDs will do it. I I suspect, you know, as someone who's been you know watching this stuff since uh, I've been well, I've been an internet user since the 70s, back when <laughs> very few people used it. Indeed. What I think would have happened is rather than the BSDs uh, uh, rising up, instead it, we would be in a world where it would be uh, SunOS, Solaris, Project Monterey, which was IBM's AIX. Well, there's, Project Monterey was, were, was many things, but it was also their attempt to bring AIX to the x86 world. And you know, SunOS, Solaris would have been r- running the internet today and I, I get you know free BSD I think would have been uh, a a real player but I don't see like today the world runs on Linux for all intents and purposes there are a few exceptions but there are darn few not counting the desktop of course but uh, I just don't see the BSDs being able to become the overwhelming operating system infrastructure that Linux is instead I see it as being this uh, Free fold or even fourfold counting a, a let's call it Windows NT twenty twenty powering up the uh, internet. Yeah, I, I guess I just viewed the open source uh, an open source operating system as being economically inevitable, uh, and the elimination of proprietary. I mean, essentially, the proprietary operating system is is more or less gone on the server. I mean, it's it, on the, the on the phone, on the device, we still, the, you, you've got elements of proprietariness, in some cases extreme. But on the on the server, the, the uh, operating systems are strictly open. And I think that's because of the, the again, overwhelming economic forces pointing to that. Um, I think uh, customers want it to be open. There's a lot of value in it being open. And I don't think that customers would have accepted, and I don't think you'd see the rise of the cloud certainly on a proprietary operating system. I don't see how you how do you have an AWS 
mm-hmm. that is based on, on a proprietary operating system that's paying licensing fees to Microsoft. It doesn't make any sense. Um, well, you know, we, we you say that now, but again, you know, we're looking at it, and we 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 know Linux One. We know that open source became the dominant uh, software development paradigm uh, of our time. But I'm not sure that without Linux that would happen, because if you look at the BSD license, it lends itself actually to proprietary implementations. Uh, all you have to do is look at Apple and MacOS. Those of us who are deep in technology know that that's actually a BSD operating system underneath all that, but the users certainly don't know, and MacOS is about as proprietary an operating system that exists out there today. So looking back there, I see BSDs being spun into uh, proprietary systems, and we don't really care that much because it's not open source that now would matter in this alternative future. It's open standards instead. And I think you know, Sun was certainly always a leader when it came to open standards. Uh, who knows? Sun may have bought Oracle in this alternative future. Insert snark um, about that may yeah. be a better thing. But yeah, I, well, yeah, I, I, I don't know about that. We can speculate on that too, I guess. I, I guess I, I just see the, the, the much larger economic trends at play. So first of all, on the, 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 the kind of the putative, uh, the, the licensing differences rather between, not, not putative, but actual licensing differences between BSD and Linux, um, it, it is true that, that BSD allows for a, a product, a proprietary product to be derived and shipped. Uh, but the same is effectively true for Linux and has happened in all of the hyperscalers. Uh, the, so all of the hyperscalers have their own Linux distribution effectively that is proprietary and that you are never going to see the patches for, for, and especially at, at Google and Amazon, these, uh, these derivatives are absolutely load bearing and there's lots of stuff in there that's proprietary that you're never going to see. So, I, I mean, let's not delude ourselves into believing that the that the Linux that the Ubuntu that one runs on one's laptop is the same thing that is running the cloud at AWS or Google. Mm, so, I, a lot of that code. It's pretty close. That's not. That, that's factually not true. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you can talk to anybody at either Google or Amazon, and they will uh, happily tell you that. that oh, yeah. I mean, there, there certainly are a lot of stuff that they've put in there to improve it on their platforms and for their for their uses. But you're probably closer to that than I am these days. But I would you know, I argue that it's still the, the core kernel is still you know linux if there are any significant problems they find along the way or significant improvements those are pushed out into the uh in back into the linux kernel i mean uh, okay, now we're talking about an, uh, talk about alternate timelines mm-hmm. i mean that is not that that's just not a point of fact what actually happens okay well so we have different I mean, is, it, uh, is it well so, so just go look at the at the contributions coming from those companies to the Linux kernel and where they're coming from within those companies first of all there are uh, there there are uh, few from the cloud side uh, and in some cases, go, go go look at Amazon's contributions to Linux right I mean th- there there aren't many to hang your hat on mm-hmm. um, so the and Amazon absolutely AWS absolutely has found issues with Linux that have been fixed and in their Linux that have not been pushed. Absolutely no question. 
there are degrees to which even those companies may view that as regrettable and they may want to get that stuff pushed upstream, but uh, but let's not pretend that there is a single and solitary Linux kernel that has not does not have any sort of proprietary derivatives. Okay. Um, can we agree though that you know BSD certainly lends itself much more to creating truly proprietary well, yeah, truly proprietary. I, I, I don't think that there's a material difference. I think that there there are. Yeah. I think that because so much of that software does exist server side and is not actually shipped in the the kind of product embodiment that the GPL was envisioning, those structures on the GPL just don't apply. Um, so um, you know, and and. Look at the attempts of of Linux to you know look at, at Torvalds' reaction to the GPLv3, which arguably would have addressed some of these issues at least in its early instantiations. And needless to say, the Linux kernel was not was not relicensed and is not going to be relicensed no. um, because um, much of its its users rely on this property that they can make modifications without having to float those up. Um, so I, I don't think the BSDs are materially different in this regard. I don't think that the, you know, I, I guess I don't really subscribe to the kind of the licensing view of history, that the licensing difference is material, especially because there are so many things that do violate the GPL, um, where you find people shipping embodiments of Linux without making their uh, their modifications available. So I, that I, I don't. I don't really see as material. Um, I think that the what what is material is the, the the fact that Linux ended up getting a very broad device support, um, and you have got greater confidence for an arbitrary device that there's a Linux driver than there is anything else. Uh, and I do think that that is that is material. Mm-hmm. It affected Berkson positions for sure. Brian, let me ask you something that kind of relates to your your history at Sun, and I think this has sort of come up peripherally already. But uh, if you go back to the '90s, Sun was in fact really one of the very few players in the industry who wasn't, at some level, resigned to Microsoft Windows taking over the operating system universe. You know, Scott, was, Scott McNeely, your, your CEO, was up there in stage calling um, Windows, I think, a coagulated pile of garbage or something along those lines. And, and that... Uh, yeah, he called uh, Windows 95 was whipped cream on a road apple, was his... <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. So, so, so here's what my question is, though, was given that the industry... Modulo, Scott, and Sun were convinced that Windows was going to take over the world. Was the industry just totally brain dead? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, the industry was wrong. And the industry's been wrong like many times before. So this is not, this should not be earth shattering or a newsflash. But the, the companies that embraced Windows had very serious, deep structural problems. And they, uh, it, it was an act of capitulation, and it was not forward-thinking at all. Um, it, they, they were um, from all of them, right? And you can, they from from DEC, from HP, from um, from IBM, and then I mean, it, it, probably the most pathetic one is SGI, just because SGI absolutely should have been an independent thinker, but um, felt that it needed to forego its future to Windows. I mean, you, you can kind of get to some of that fear 
in the, the Larry McVoy's Sourceware paper um, from 1993 captures some of that fear as it existed in the industry. But there was just, you know, Microsoft was, they were a monopolistic competitor. They were vicious. Um, they had a fearsome reputation. And it just, they had certainly conquered all personal computer operating systems. And it just felt to uh, a bunch in the industry that they were going to conquer everything. I felt at the time, and I very much voted with my career because I felt strongly that that was not the case as a 22-year-old, and I went to go work for the only computer company that that uh, agreed with my point of view, and what I saw was the the rise of symmetric multiprocessing, and then and the rise of the internet as something that that Microsoft didn't get at all. And I just didn't see them participating in that. Um, and I saw that the not just the Unix-based systems, but other operating systems were um, were in a much better position. So um, you know, one of still one uh, probably one of the the, the uh, most uh, impactful uh, articles I have ever read is Byte Magazine's Alternative OS Roundup in 1993. Thank um, you. And I wrote it, that. It, it, did you really? <laughs> nice. <Yes. laughs> really. That's actually funny. So that described a. So I remember where I was when I read that. I was in I was in Chicago O'Hare, headed back to Denver. I went to school in the East Coast, and the that alternative OS roundup talked about a bunch of other OSs that were out there. And I think each of those OSs was actually quite a bit more interesting than Windows in terms of seeing the future. Um, I think what what Microsoft saw then was the present that it dominated in personal computing. It didn't understand server-side computing. It didn't understand a bunch of these different aspects of computing. Um, and so I think, yes, the, the, the rest of the industry was just wrong. Uh, and Stephen Seach, I, I, I guess I did not realize that you'd written the article. I'm, I'm sorry for that. The, uh, <laughs> the, the, your article featured an operating system called QNX and QNX. And I actually went to work for QNX the, that next summer and then the summer after that doing OS development um, at QNX um, because I, and having learned about it um, in, in that Byte Magazine article. So, and that, that kind of set my course to doing industrial OS development. What a strange world we live in. You know, if I could address that question as well, you, you're quite right. You had all these terrified companies kowtowing to Microsoft, and that was such a foolish, foolish business plan. Even by that time, if you, if you had looked at Microsoft's history of its partners, Microsoft is the conductor. If you're lucky, you get to be in the orchestra. If you're not lucky, you get to uh, be, be the sweeper cleaning up after the orchestra is done playing. Uh, so most of these attempts to uh, become partners with Microsoft end up failing and these companies, they, they go nowhere. Uh, which is very sad because you know some of them, like Silicon Graphics in particular, they did they had some marvelous engineers. They did some great stuff, and it's, it was all abandoned. You know, and you also mentioned how you know Microsoft did not get servers or the internet, and then this, this is very true. If you if you ever have if boring things, I do. Look at a first edition of Bill Gates' book, The Road Ahead, originally published in '95. I think you'll find one line in it about the internet. 1995. He still doesn't. Right. right. Next edition, suddenly it's internet here, internet there. They're pretending that they're you know they're the leaders of the uh, 
And, and of course, they're not, uh, except on the desktop, but that goes into an entirely different uh, universe. So, uh, Stephen, are you talking yourself out of your position then? I mean, I, no. so, g- 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 okay. I still think Linux is vitally important to development of the commercial internet as opposed to the internet I grew up with. And uh, I think that it's the marriage of the x86 processor, your position, that it, that's the more important element. And, you know, I, I would continue to argue it's that marriage between that and Linux that really accelerates. You take these economic elements and it's that combination that powers us into this new world that we are in. And I'm not sure at all that the BSDs could have done that. Uh, right, so one thing that would be interesting to, to consider, because I know that um, there's some folks online that, that are with, with a kind of an IBM-centric view of the world who believe that um, IBM's adoption of Linux circa the early 2000s um, mm-hmm. was, was uh, seminal. What role does that play? Because I, I, again, view that as very much a lagging indicator more than a leading indicator. And I guess I associate that more than anything else with IBM spray painting penguins on the sidewalks of San Francisco and mm-hmm. getting in a huge, huge amount of trouble with the city of San Francisco. The city of San Francisco is like, ah, this is just vandalism, actually. You need to actually go remember this that. <laughs> what role did that play? Because I'm, I'm sure there are, there are people who viewed that as playing a very important role. Uh, actually, I think that's a very important thing. I don't think, you know, if we're talking about, you know, the the internet of the 80s, early 90s, and so on, of whom mid-90s when Linux starts to, to uh, play a role there. It's not that important from that point of view, but what the IBM acceptance does is it gives an official Fortune 50 blessing to an operating system, which previously was still seen as this thing that only really nerdy academic sorts were going to do anything with. And yes, it could be useful for little companies who can't afford to buy an IBM mini or mainframe or, I suppose, a SunSpark station. But now, after their blessing, it's all these businesses that otherwise might not even at this point have even heard about Linux yet are waking up and saying, well, what is this anyway? Why are they putting on these odd advertisements on primetime television with this little kid named Linux and who's going to do all these wonderful things? So as people who are primarily technologists, I don't think it made that much of a difference to us, but for the business world, the greater economic world, I think that made an enormous difference. Whenever I write stories about Linux history, I always you know, credit that as being the development which turned Linux from being this odd technic- techie background thing to something that all businesses at least were familiar with. And then, of course, as time goes on, more and more of them adopt it. Yeah, interesting. In terms of, and the question is, like, what role does that actually play in the in in the rise? But um, sounds like you don't disagree. Don't disagree that it was uh, important, but but re- relatively late in the the rise of Linux. Uh, I think it's a, a marker of a of a different change. It's the move that takes Linux from being primarily a technology innovation to being a business innovation. What is the technology innovation in Linux? Just, just to clarify for me. 
the technology. Oh, well, okay. Actually, if we talk about innovation, in the, the the true innovation is that it introduces open source as a concept, which will then be used to transform all the software development. Linux itself, of course, is it's really just. How, is this, how did you put it? Just a little operating system that he's developing on an x86 and he could use some help with. And it's really, it's Unix. And so it's, it does not in and of its, Linux in and of itself, it's just Unix. We all know that. But it's, to me, it's the whole that it sparks off the development of open source as opposed to free software. That is, it's, it's true innovation. It's actually an, a side effect of Linux. Yeah. Okay. Fair. I mean, I I definitely don't view I view again Linux as being a uh, I, I think that it's the tail on the dog, but I think that the open source exists very much without Linux. Um, I think arguably Perl may, as more of a, a more of an accelerant to the rise of open source than Linux does in that regard. Honestly, if you look uh, yeah. at like. But you look at like say GNU C though, and uh, yeah, it's oh, GCC as well. Yeah, I, I, I yes, yep, I would agree with that. Yeah, GCC is is maybe the first open source software that is really competitive with proprietary software to the point that people are are not buying the proprietary software. And then actually, you go. You also do. I mean, not to to you know hit an old chestnut for for Sun folks, but Sun's decision to unbundle the compiler, which was right. terrible definitely helped accelerate the rise of GCC because people liked, as it turns out, having their compiler with their operating system. Um, and it gave a huge opportunity for GCC. Except, you know, but again, that's RMS's free software world, which is a very different one from the uh, open source world. So I'm not, again, I'm not sure that would have, I mean, obviously GCC is vitally important. I mean, it was then, still is to this very day. But I don't can't see that really become the, the philosophy behind it. Though I can't see transforming into open source because you know RMS objected to that. Still to this day, objects to it strenuous to the open source model strenuously. I just I, I have real trouble seeing it happening without uh, Linux and without. But let's talk about Perl, though, and let's talk about Apache, and let's talk about MySQL, because those were, I mean, I, I, I think actually those technologies are arguably more, act as more of an accelerant and less of a symptom mm -hmm. of the rise of open source than Linux. Um, I mean, the fact that you had, I mean, Perl for sure, again, Perl is, it, it, sure. to me is one of these early cases where you have open source software, open software, free software, whatever you want to call it, because it does kind of predate the nomenclature, right. that is doing something that, that, that you're not going to get proprietary software to do. And so, I mean, I, so the rise of Perl seems to be totally, I mean, it, it, so do, you, do you think the rise of Perl did not at all, didn't, didn't have any contributing, was not a contributing factor to the rise of open source? I think that it helped with it. I don't think it's primary, though. I mean, let's see, Perl, what, Larry Wall creates it, what, in 87, 86, 87, I think. And it certainly will become a very important uh, scripting language on Unix. But we've already had scripting languages before. Nothing as powerful as Perl, of course. You know, I, I know. I think I, I did an excellent job of developing Perl and so on. But again, I don't see him. I, Larry didn't take Perl, and it didn't become the intellectual touchstone to causing innovation 
in how software was created. Very important. Wow. Okay. <laughs> oh, those are fighting words. Because I think so. Look, Linux did not. I, I expected that. I think Linux did not innovate on abstraction at all. Like, let's just be clear about something. Linux, there's no innovation in abstraction. Linux is an implementation of someone else's abstraction. Right. With 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 Perl that did innovate on abstraction. Mm-hmm. And Perl is actually uh, very important for that, that early, early internet. Is, right. It is Perl scripts running out of, of uh, either uh, Apache or the, effectively Apache or even Perl web servers in the, the, the kind of the, the mid-90s, late-90s. Perl is very, very important for the rise of those early internet properties because it did innovate on abstraction. It made it much easier to, uh, for people to write for non-software engineers to, for operations, for folks who've got kind of an operations background to actually write something that actually worked pretty well as software. Perl is very much, I think, associated with the rise of Python, which is which becomes important later. But I think, it, boy, in that mid '90s period, I think Perl is really important for the the, the rise of the internet. And I think Apache is important, and I think MySQL is important. Apache arguably more so a bit than MySQL because again it was innovating in terms of abstraction. MySQL is not again like Linux is not really innovating in terms of abstraction, but is also making a, a, a freely available alternative. So I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think Perl Perl is important for the, the the time in which it really moves things forward. No, I, I certainly agree with you that Perl, Apache, and MySQL are all vitally important. Perl first, 87, I just looked it up while we were talking. And then uh, Apache is 95, I think SQL, MySQL is actually a little earlier, 94. But anyway, mid-90s. But you take all those components together and you add Linux to it. Let's see, Linux, Apache, MySQL, Perl. What do you end up with? Hi, we've just created the LAMP stack. And uh, to get back to Gordon's original question, uh, you know, what happens without Linux? I'm not sure that a Banff, BSD, Apache, MySQL, Perl stack is going to exist. I'm not sure that it would. I mean, look. Well, oh, it, it definitely would, Oh, it would exist. It, it becomes as important <laughs> as the LAMP stack does. I think it's a, another question entirely. Maybe yeah, we didn't have a ramp stack. Windows, Apache, MySQL, PH, uh, Perl. No, I think that was going to be an all-open stack. I think it would have been the BAMP stack. Um, and I, I think it had it, um, I don't know, I guess if it hadn't been, uh, again, of those, I think Perl and Apache are are more innovative than, in, in some regards, um, than um, certainly the MySQL and Linux, and I think it would have been, you would have had other, probably other alternatives in there, but I think that they they did serve as accelerants to to open source. You've got, um, and many more people contributing uh, or certainly using them to to create new software rather than to simply operate their existing software. But so yeah, I, th- I think we would have had a. I, I guess to kind of return Gordon to your original question, um, I think that there were a lot of of open source contributors um, in terms of software bodies out there. Um, and I think had it the, the idea of uh, Torvald as creator of Heaven and Earth, uh, I, I definitely think is a is a misread of history. And I think we would have, uh, I think history would have unfolded in in 
not wholly dissimilar ways. Um, I think that, and and that's probably true of, of any given individual. I, I don't know that it, it's very hard for single individuals, unless they're going to be assassins of archdukes, to really shape the course of, of history. It, it, I think that the economic forces at play are just too great for whatever it's worth. Well, Brian, I think I'm going to let you have the last word there because that was uh, that was pretty good. And if, you know, to your to your archduke point, I think there's a very good argument that if that hadn't been the trigger, something else would have ended up being the trigger. Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovate at Open. For future episodes, subscribe to Innovate at Open on your favorite podcast app. You can also go bitmason, B-I-T-M-A-S-O-N, dot blogspot.com for show notes, blogs, and a full archive of episodes and more. Thank you for listening. This is Gordon Half, technology evangelist at Red Hat.